This is Bill Connolly here. Uh, I'm with Bud Elliott, SB Nation's head of recruiting, although for today, uh, Bud, you are called the secretary of recruiting because I am the commissioner of college football. I'm running for election to a post that A, doesn't exist, and B, won't have an election tied to it, Uh, but I'm doing it anyway. I am the commissioner of college football now, and we are here to talk about the things that we are going to change uh, in, in the realm of college football recruiting. College, football, you know, maybe basketball, blah, 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 if we're talking generally. But most specifically now, uh, college football recruiting, what needs to be changed and what we are going to change. I'm all about it, man. Let's do this. <laughs> we, we have to kind of recreate a conversation we had in a bar in New York. I know, that's year. right. This, is, uh, this started uh, at our SB Nation meetings a, couple, a few weeks ago. Uh, we had this exact conversation, and now we're going to, without the whatever – Whatever beer we were having that night. Without that, uh, we are going to try to recreate it. But bottom line here is um, I, I think slowly we are starting to make a little bit of progress when it comes to bringing a little bit of sense to college football recruiting. I do think the early signing period was a good step. It's, it's a step. It's not anything long term that's going to uh, help a ton, but I think it's a step. And so first of all, I wanted to ask you about that specific thing. Since that was an actual change that was made, what do you think uh, the impact of the early signing period will be? I know we talked about, uh, I, I think I know where you're going to go, and I'm going to, uh, so I know I'm going to plot my response, but where do you think the, the this, uh, what, what impact do you think this has specifically? Well, we, we want this to be evergreen, uh, so we're going to assume right. that it's actually going to pass. Uh, right. it, it still has to be voted on in April, uh, but in all indications are, are that, that it's, it's likely to pass. So there will be an early signing day uh, in December, about 10 weeks before National Signing Day, uh, probably the third week in December, so about a week before Christmas maybe. Um, I, it's going to change some things for sure. It, it, from a, a coaching perspective, you are going to be able to figure out which recruits who are verbally committed to you are committed to you in actuality, right? Because if, if a kid is verbally committed to you and he doesn't sign in your early signing period after you – want him to do so well then you got a good idea where this kid stands he may not be quite so committed to you as uh as he claims to be on the on the flip side if a kid you know decides not not or maybe the kid is not sent a letter of intent for that day even if he's a verbal commit maybe that's an indication that he's kind of a wait and see target for that school a little more than he thought it's a good way to gather information for both the school and the coach before signing day. And I think there are significant benefits to this. It, there's, a, I think, an emotional benefit to it. Uh, if you're a recruit, if you got your grades in order and you know where you want to go and you've been committed for a year, why not just go ahead and, and sign and, and get it knocked out? You know, you're going to have the holiday season a little more stress-free because you've already locked in your spot. <laughs> uh, you know, if, if you still got finals going on, maybe you can, uh, you know, maybe you can focus on that. But, there, there are also some significant downsides potentially. I think um, the one one of the things that everybody brings up is, um, you know, the, does this just basically take February and move it to December? Like, is is there really going to be any sort of different? Is there going to be a true like pair of signing periods, or is just that everything that was happening on February first or so is going to happen on December whatever seventeenth, uh, and and nothing else really changes all that much? Uh, I, I think it's. A lot of February is going to shift to December, but there's still going to be an important race for February uh, because teams are essentially going to sit down after that signing period in December and say, okay, 
what did we get? And over the last 10 weeks, what do we still need to recruit really hard to finish off this class? There will still be drama in February, which, hey, I'm, I'm happy about that. Uh, two, <laughs> two signing days, more, more money for us. Uh, but I, I do think a lot of your kids are, are going to sign early if they have the grades to do so. Yeah. And I think, you know, my opinion on the um, the, the – where are the blue chippers are going to sign? You know, that's, that's, that was a big thing. Like are, are all these signing days or signing ceremonies ceremonies, excuse me, just going to move to December. I think part of that is going to be dependent on what happens this first couple of years that they do it. Um, you know, because, you know, does some mate, does the number one recruit in the country uh, announce on December 17th or whatever? Um, and is it a big hit basically? Like if he waits, if the top few kids, undecided kids in the country wait until February, maybe it stays in February to some degree and maybe schools use it uh, December as a way of, like you said, kind of taking care of the basics so they can focus on the big names in, for February, like the, the big remaining names or needs or whatever. But on the other hand, if a couple of those undecided guys do announce in December, then maybe that becomes the new trend. I think it, the, this is an interesting time where the first couple of years they do this, and I am assuming they do this, um, it does seem like it has enough support that it's going to happen. The first couple of years they do this are going to decide a lot for how the, 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 the whole marketplace functions over the next few years. You're exactly right. Um, the other aspect of that is some kids may not have the leverage to wait. Right. right. An elite kid is going to be able to tell a school, hey, I'm, I'm actually going to wait until sign a day for, for a variety of reasons that I'm sure we'll get into here in a second. Yeah. If you're like an average kid, that school might just tell you, hey, um, you know, man, if you don't want to sign, right. <laughs> we're just going to sign somebody else because you know, you're, you're not that much above replacement level here. It's baseball season, so I guess we can start talking about war. <laughs> um, what's, what's, what's baseball? Yeah, exactly. God. Uh, it's a sport I, I can watch and not think about work. Um, so with, why would you not want to sign early? Mm-hmm. A couple of reasons. Number one, you may be waiting on an offer from a school that you perceive is better than perhaps your best existing offer. That's a good reason uh, to wait. I think that's probably the case. You, may, you also may not have grades uh, to, to get yeah. into some schools, and you may want to be waiting for those December grades to post uh, you might not have acceptance into some schools, like a Stanford sometimes gets back to kids very late in the process on, on whether they're actually likely to be accepted and admitted into the school because you don't want to sign with the school if they're not going to accept you, especially if you have other legitimate offers. But but I think that the primary reason why I would wait and not sign early if, if that was going to be my call is because we don't know what kind of outs that the NCAA is going to afford the student-athlete in this deal. And you know what happens in December, Bill? Coaching changes. A yeah. lot of them. Yeah. Yeah, and, and hopefully a lot of them have happened by that point. But you're still maybe, uh, you know, it's definitely going to be in the middle of the carousel. Um, and, and that does make things pretty weird. I mean, that's I know we've had this conversation before about the, when they were talking about a, like an August signing period. Which, by the way, always cracks me up to think about, you know, coaches going through fall camp and then uh, take, taking time out to, you know, do all the all, all of that, too. But um, the whole, you know, if a coach leaves, do you, are you allowed out? Or if the offensive coordinator leaves, are you allowed out and all that? And it is a very tricky thing um, that I don't think there's a 
there's not a clear answer to because, I mean, you can draw a line, but it's going to be an arbitrary line. Like, okay, well, if the coordinator, if your offensive court, if you're a receiver, your offensive coordinator leaves, then you're out. But if your receiver's coach or the guy who's recruiting you leaves, then you're not out. Um, it gets really weird, and they're going to be, they're going to have to have a plan for how to handle a lot more release requests. Exactly right. Now, it, I think the way that the NCAA could do this, and they probably won't because they, they typically don't do things that are friendly to the student-athlete. They, they do things <laughs> that are friendly to the school. Yeah. But if you were going to design this in a way that, that is equitable to both the student-athlete and to the school, I, I think, you would do it this way. When you sign, you say, okay, I acknowledge that I'm signing with the school and not for a specific coach, yada, yada, whatever. Right. But if these coaches leave – then I can opt out of my letter of intent. And those, those coaches would be the head coach, the coordinator on you, the side of the ball that you mm-hmm. intend to play, and you'd have to list them, whichever one that is, not both, obviously. The position coach of the position that you intend to play. So you and the school would have to agree on what position that is. I don't think that'd be that hard. And then I think your area recruiter, whichever coach is assigned to recruit your area, because if folks at home don't know, your receiver's coach does not go recruit every, every receiver Right. That the school intends to sign in the country, that may be a lot of sky miles, but typically you have coaches recruit areas. They discover the players, they develop the relationships, then the position coach follows up. So maybe your area coach, the guy, the recruiter who actually recruited you the most, the guy you have the best relationship with most likely would be the fourth. So I think those four coaches, if one of them leaves, I would give the kid the opportunity to opt out. Now, is that going to happen? Probably not. Is it going to create a lot of headaches? I, yeah, most most likely. But I, I don't. I, I'd like your thoughts. Do you think that's a fair system? How, how would you How would you do that? I, I you know, w- when you're talking about you know in, putting that into whatever legislation, I was trying to figure out a way to kind of to standardize that. And maybe it is just listing all four of those. Maybe it's that the. the this, this would get really weird from a, a staff politics standpoint, but you can a kid can list like two uh, that they're allowed to you know opt out if, if one of these two leaves or whatever. But no, I mean, I think it has to be as open-ended as possible, um, which makes it weird because the whole point of signing is that the, the school can say, okay, you're in, and now we need to focus on these other needs. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Coach, that's always been the biggest um, – well, okay, no, the money is the biggest uh, disparity between coaches and athletes. But the second biggest is is freedom of movement. And th- from a transfer standpoint, we always complain about, uh, you know, the transfer epidemic. But it, it's also only fair that that students can leave. But in this case, it is it is weird. I think the fairest thing is to allow them to list all four of those coaches and say, if any of them leave, I have the option. I mean, not that, not that you know – I'm from Texas, and my Texas, uh, or, or my Texas area recruiter left. Uh, you don't have to leave, and maybe you don't, you don't even have all that uh, uh, much of an attachment with him, but you would at least have the option to ask for a release. Um, and you're right. That's going to create so much more paperwork than, than previously existed. But uh, so be it. I mean, that's uh, anything that we can add in terms of convenience for the student-athlete um, – We'll talk about this commission platform here in a little bit, and one of them is the whole issue of player compensation and whatnot. But um, that's a giant, messy thing that is hard to attack and hard to figure out. But anything else we can give that adds fairness to the student-athlete experience, I think is even if it creates more of a pain for the people making a lot of money, uh, so be it. You know, the the other thing I think that you're going to see if this doesn't get enacted the way I would like it to or, or with some reasonable solution is that these schools are going to be in PR battles a lot. 
Right. <laughs> I mean, this, this for their SID staff is going to be kind of a nightmare. Uh, we saw this a little bit with the Baylor situation, right? When the scandal really broke, you had some kids who were essentially already signed to Baylor uh, or, you know, yeah, they, they, or they had enrolled at Baylor early, actually. And that, that whole scandal broke and they wanted out. Yeah. And ultimately, Baylor initially sort of stonewalled them or ignored them. I know we, we on Explanation spoke to a couple parents who uh, were told, hey, come back next week. And then they kind of did the old IRS thing. Oh, that guy no longer works here uh, <laughs> to talk to you. Uh, ultimately, I think certain prospects will be able to get out of their letters of intent, even without this clause, because they know how to work the media and because they know they, they potentially have leverage. But some kids are, are going to get kind of screwed over here, uh, which, yeah. which sucks for them. And, I mean, I guess part of this, too, is if you're not going to let them out, then a lot of the big-name guys are still going to sign in February, and it's only going to be, um, like, you know, for using a Missouri as an example, the, the, the two- or three-star lineman who committed the previous March and wants to go ahead and sign, those guys will sign in December. But then all your big recruiting battles are still remaining, and maybe that's okay. Maybe just getting that out of the way so you don't have to, you don't have, like these six or eight or ten guys you're going to sign in December. You don't, you don't have to go through that maintenance process, and you can focus more on the big guys. Maybe that's fine. Um, what I'm curious about too, uh, using Missouri as an example for obvious reasons, um, every year you know Missouri makes a lot of its bones on the diamond in the rough types who, or the late bloomer types. Um, you know, they lost, a a, 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 a receiver commit this year, Texas kid. He, he was, uh, Missouri was one of his first offers. He was committed throughout the fall, I believe. And, it, and well into January. Um, and then Ohio state hops in at the end, gets him to visit and, and gets his, his signature. Um, that that's always going to happen with the quote unquote recruiting blue bloods versus everybody else. They are able to jump in at the last minute. Once they realize what they do or don't have, they can kind of go to that second tier, uh, and, 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 uh, hopefully for them find some kids that they can uh, reel in at the last second. Those kids, I'm really curious if they sign in December um, because as of December, you know, you got your, you got a pretty good offer and, and you're happy with it. You don't know who's, who will or won't come calling in late January, but that's a group that I'm really curious about uh, what the trend becomes for those guys. Well, and I think it will depend on, on what the sort of perceived superior school tells them. Yeah, if yeah. I'm if I'm Ohio State and I'm talking to that kid and he's saying, "Hey, coach, I, I think I'm, I'm going to go ahead and sign with Missouri in December," I'm going to tell him, "Hey, is Missouri going anywhere? They're not going to drop you if you don't sign, right? Right? Why, why don't you see who we sign? If you like our depth chart, if we like you, maybe we'll maybe we'll offer you. If we don't, it's not like you're going to lose your spot at Missouri. And if they drop you anyway, they clearly didn't want you that much." Right. Why don't you just wait? I, I think that's how the, that the superior schools will try to, will try to play it. Um, but I, I do think a lot of kids will sign early, and I think this will have somewhat of an effect on the the. I think it's going to create a little more parity, right? Because sometimes there just is a discovery period in December and January where, where schools move some of the elite schools move to their second and third targets, especially after reviewing uh, really you know, updated senior films, senior highlight tape, that type of stuff. And they offer some kids. I and mean, we, we've seen that. Um, you know, Eddie Jackson for Alabama, multi-year starter, was, was a pretty late offer by the Tide uh, out, of, uh, out of the East Coast of Florida there. It happens. So I, I do think that some of the schools who are really good at scouting, I think Missouri's mm-hmm. a good scouter. I think Southern Miss is a good scouter. Uh, those schools are going to see a little benefit from this. 
Um, and and us talking about this, by the way, reminds me of just how ridiculous basketball signing period is where they have – uh, the first signing period is right before the season starts to where, you know, it's the, the, the players have not even started their senior year yet. And the team has not started. Uh, you, 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 I mean, you know, like Duke's going to be good, but generally you don't really know what kind of team you're signing for because you don't know how the next season's going to play out. Uh, and then like, what is it? Five months later, there's the second signing period where uh, the season is over uh, and coaching changes has, have happened. And there are a bunch of release requests and all that. It's, it is the timing of basketball is really weird. The timing of this makes more sense. I know you didn't really like the August idea very much, right? Well, no, I, I thought the August idea could work. Um, I would prefer more of like a late July idea because it, you, you're not really in camp yet. The August idea, you're right, it does butt up against camp a whole lot. Um, you know, December, I don't know how much of a break December really offers kids compared to February. August is a pretty significant right. break. Uh, there's, right. the, the, the arguments for an August or, or late July are this. You're probably not going to sign that many kids, right? So it's not really going to replace February. B, the kid is going to have more security that you're not going to pull his scholarship offer if he gets hurt, right? You, right. You're, you're locked in. And so he can play free and easy his senior year. I think high school coaches would really like this idea uh, because, look, they're not having to have kids, uh, you know, leave and, and, and go, go on, on visits, maybe, maybe skip a, a game that's not that important to them to go visit a school that's far away. And also it affords the student athlete the ability to uh, focus on his grades more during his senior year if you don't have all these recruiters calling you because once you're signed, you're signed. The calls stop. Yeah. So I actually, in some ways, like the August, but but also I, I, schools have less information, kids have less information that far out, so that there are certainly downsides to it. And I know that I mean that's where the scouters um, would really benefit the good scouting schools, uh, you know, being able to kind of make their judgments ba- without necessarily or at least knowing who to look for better on that second tier. Uh, they'd be able to to do a lot better on that tier without worrying about losing guys to bigger schools later on. But absolutely, yeah, it, and and the risk takers, you know, the yeah. certain kids who yeah. are, are kind of less finished products at the time. If I'm a super elite school, maybe I I don't have the ability to offer him a roster spot until I see how that skill is actually put to use on the football field. If I'm kind of more of a mid level school, I'm going to roll that dice. Yeah. If if he ends up being good, that's a player I normally can't sign. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, all right, so those are the changes that have been made to some degree. What changes as as uh, the leaders of the college football universe, what changes are we making when it comes to recruiting? What still needs to be improved, uh, even if you know, you've got this little second little signing period that sort of addresses a couple of issues? Uh, I would like, to, first of all, in, in conjunction with the early signing period, and I think this is going to happen as well, uh, pushing up the official visit calendar for recruits who have, have taken a mm-hmm. test and, and have the GPA. Uh, this is a really good idea. If you're going to sign early, you want to be able to take official visits more in you know, late summer type thing, July, August, or even maybe spring visits, if, if that's yeah. where you want to go with this. I, why restrict when a kid can take a visit? Once he's taken his test, you have, you have to have at least – you don't have to have a, a qualifying SAT score, but you have to have at least taken the SAT uh, or ACT to go on your official visit. So uh, – if kids meet those qualifications, let them take visits early. I would probably expand the number of official visits a kid could take to m- maybe seven if they're going to mm. be able to do it early. Uh, I'm, I'm cool with that. I also, the, the one change that, that, I, that I don't like that I think got pushed through, and Nick Saban uh, kind of used a, 
I don't know if you saw this rant. Uh, I think y'all talked about it on on PAPN, where he started talking about ball control or whatever. But he yeah. he, he quickly shifted into what yeah. he actually wanted to talk about. Like, right. He, he didn't care about the ball control thing. He just he started ranting on that, and like like three minutes in, he, he flips to the idea that now you can't pay high school coaches to come work your camps. Right. Right. Well, guess who takes prospects up to camps? Right. High school coaches who don't make you know diddly squat in in at least in the south. I don't know what teachers get paid in Missouri, but in Florida, uh, where I live, it's the pay is terrible. Um, well, we are we are officially the south now, so it's all the same. So yeah, you guys are are, are prob- probably not paying them much either. No, no, not not at all. Um, so, what happens if the high school coach can't take you up to a school? Either a you don't get to go to the school. B your parent takes you, but a lot of times these, these kids who come from one parent homes, you know, their, their parents are working on the weekends as well, trying to support the family. It's, it's a tough situation. So you, a lot of times get this, uh, shady middleman uncle figure, right? Uh, uncle in quotation marks here, usually <laughs> who takes them up there. And is oftentimes a guy who you don't really want involved in a recruitment may or may not have the prospects best interest at heart. Uh, why would you not allow high school coaches to bring their players up to a, a college camp, get paid to work the camp? It's not like they're unqualified instructors. They're, they're not given the primary instruction. It's more secondary stuff. It helps to provide supervision for the kids when they're on campus. It helps to, to give the, the high school coach more perspective on a school that the kid is considering. And the high school coach can go back home and implement some of the things that were taught at the college camp with yeah. his high school team, which is one of the primary purposes they want to go anyway. I, my thing is let's have high school coaches more involved in the recruitment and have less of the shady kind of <laughs> hangers-on, seven-on-seven, you know, that, that type of stuff going on. So definitely let high school coaches be paid to, to get kids up to camps, number one. Number two, let's cut out the, the rules that benefit the lazy college coaches. And by and, and you've seen Jimbo and Saban and Meyer bitch about this a lot. Can I say bitch on here? I, sure. I guess, yeah, I, it's it's all good. So, I, the, basically, head coaches who want to golf a lot and don't want to do recruiting have banded together and have got rules passed that severely limit how many off-campus visits recruit or uh, coaches can make to see recruits. Oh, Fish, yeah. Now that's ridiculous. It, why would we want to not reward somebody? For for you know being willing to go to go work his butt off and and go try and make the best relationship with a kid he can, but also to gather the, the crucial information on a kid. A lot of times we see these articles, you know, why would this school sign this player given his background, this or that? Well, guess what? It's very difficult now, probably more difficult than ever, to find out things in person about a kid because your your number of visits have been limited by NCAA rule that are pushed for by a lot of these head coaches. Um, I think Fisher and Saban call them the, the, the lazy coach rules, right? <laughs> Which I, I, I agree with. Let's also, if you're going to make it tougher for kids to get on campus because you're not able to, to supplement high school coaches dr- driving them up or down, why not make it easier for college coaches to go see these kids? Yeah. I, I, let's, let's, let's put all the cards on the table and have the most information to work with. What was, um, going back to number one for a second, what was the official rationale for not allowing the high school coaches to be paid? Was it the general, oh, this doesn't feel right, it feels like this could be corrupted, or is there something more specific than that? I'm not sure if it was that or if it was um, maybe some of the lower budget schools not, not wanting to, to do it, but I, 
it's probably the uh, probably the kind of this feels dirty type thing. Yeah, um, that's which, that's what I was assuming. I didn't know yeah. if there was something because I, I mean that's you know that that was one of the more interesting things about the whole satellite camp thing to me was you know we're we're complaining like this is um you know the Michigans of the world will benefit too much from this when it was the the secondary schools the the Georgia states of the world that were able to kind of latch onto these things a little bit and and I I don't know if that helped them to any definable level, but it certainly didn't hurt them. And, you know, and it always, we always fall back on the simple idea, the simple fact that 10 or 12 schools are going to land most of the the blue chippers, no matter what. So, you know, that doesn't mean you just let them do whatever they want, but at the same time, pretending like this rule or that rule skews the, the game in their favor. It doesn't the whole, all the entire college football universe skews the game in their favor. Um, and, and, you know, if, if it helps lower income kids, if it helps the lower, the, the lower tier schools with satellite camps and all that, I, I think we, I, we, in the name of trying to get a rain on recruiting, we've hurt the wrong schools and the wrong people. And, Absolutely. Um, and, and it's a hard thing. It's not like you can say, you know, big, bold, these five big, bold changes will change everything in recruiting. It's always going to be weird. It's always going to be messy. But I, I still don't think that a lot of the changes we've made, aside from the signing period, which I do kind of like, I don't think a lot of these have, have really helped the students, uh, among other things. Now, I, with, this, with the satellite camp ban, I, I think they kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater there. Yeah. Um, I, I'm totally cool with satellite camps being on other college campuses, right? That, that's, I'm fine with that. Yeah, to some extent on high school campuses, sure. What you were seeing, though, in some cases, is that got like some of these really shady middlemen were forming little corporations, you know, training or <laughs> event corporations, so that a big university, uh, maybe like a big one up north, could pay them hundreds of thousands of dollars to their corporation or their foundation or whatever. <laughs> right. Um, you know, uplifting recruits or w- whatever you want to go with as some generic name. Uh, I would have said that it has to be hosted on another college's yeah. campus. Yeah, and there's a couple that. things that, that here that I think would have, would have maybe provided some protections for student athletes. Number one, you're not going to have some outside uh, figure controlling who can come to the camp, right? Maybe who just want, is interested in showing off his players to the school. Number two, I think you have a better uh, – a better floor as far as what the condition of the actual playing surface and facility will be if it's held at a college campus or even at a high school as opposed to like some random field like some of these were taking place at. And you probably also are going to have better access to like actual trainers, uh, medical staff, that type of thing. It provides a little greater safety potentially for, for the student athlete if you do it at a facility that is more standardized to host football events. Yeah, I can I can agree with that. I, that is, um, I think that was the original intent of the idea, um, and then it it got it, it got taken in a weird direction. But I think we kind of overreacted to the whole satellite camp uh, idea in general. Um, all right, so what else? Like, is there are you know are there big overriding issues that just haven't been addressed that need to, or is it just like I said, is it just always going to be kind of kind of weird and messy and favoring big schools and uh, you know without any. Cl- clear and obvious fixes to any major problem. You know, I think if you, if you do the signing period right, that, that helps a whole lot. Because the only time in a kid's career that he really has leverage is as a signee. Yeah. Um, or, or, you know, before he actually signs. So I think that, that's the big one they have to nail. 
Um, understanding, maybe giving greater clarity as to what an offer is uh, could be interesting. I, I yeah. would propose that if you actually give a kid an offer during a senior year, that basically you tell them that verbal offers are not offers. Yeah. If we give you an offer with it, like within a year of your, you know, of the early signing period, that's committable. Like the school can't tell him no at that point. Right. That would, that would cut down. Some of these schools are going to offer four or 500 players. Right. <laughs> yep. Even if you're like Houston, that's old miss, you can only sign 40 and most schools can only sign 20 or 25 nowadays. Uh, I, I think I don't like the, the idea that, that the offer is committable immediately, like Paul Johnson says, because I think that would cause recruits to make hasty, regrettable decisions, especially if they do it when they're on campus. You know, uh, yeah. kids get caught up in the moment. But I do like the idea that the only legitimate offer is a written one and that that offer would be, would be committable come early signing day. It, you know, maybe some exceptions, like if you get arrested for a felony or something like right. that, then, you know, th- th- then we can pull it. But, or if you don't meet academic standards or continuing a- academic uh, progress or whatever. But I think that would really cut down. And I think that would give kids, their parents, their high school coaches, a, a better and clearer picture of who is actually committed to recruiting them and who is just kind of keeping them warm as a backup plan. Yeah, I, I like, you know, kind of a variation of the um, of the Andy Staples get rid of signing day. If you're offered, you can sign whatever kind of deal. A variation with that that I kind of like is the idea of, like, th- that is the idea, but you can't get a written offer from any school until whatever day, August 1st or July or when, whenever that date is. Like, on that day, you can you have written offers in your hand and you can sign those at any given point. Um, and... You know, that does it, like you said, like the whole idea of an offer is that it can be committed to, but it is a, we've now created these extra terms for, you know, is it a committable offer? Is it a conditional if these other guys don't or whatever? It would get rid of that. It would make coaches very, a little more strategic and a little more careful about the, the, the offers that they're sending out. Um, if you can actually say, okay, well, I'm signing this and faxing it back to you right this moment. Um, but you do, I think, have to put a date on it. You can't say, like, February, the year before signing day, um, a bunch of juniors get a bunch of offers and when, you know, there are going to be hundreds of coaching changes and their status, all these other things. That makes it a little weird. But if you make it like August 1st or something, then I do feel like that would address some of those problems uh, and get to the problems that, that Staples was trying to address when he, when he said get rid of signing day to begin with. Exactly right. Uh, the other thing I, th- I think I would do is – you have to like meet a certain amount of progress right through freshman, sophomore, junior, senior year as a recruit and, and, and in order to avoid the academic redshirt where you're basically ineligible freshman right. year. I, I think in theory that makes sense because the, the underlying theory there is that if you struggled this much in high school, it may benefit you to have essentially a year to focus just on academics and the transition from high school to college and the mm. academic load. I, I like that, but I would eliminate the high school freshman year from that equation for this reason. A lot of times we see that kids, I mean, kids that, that you know, come from rough areas and they're not really into school, it, it, very difficult home lives, suddenly football becomes an inspiration for them to get somewhere, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of times these kids are not good as freshmen. Why? Because we go through this thing as humans called puberty. <laughs> and a lot of them are just, you know, they're, 
they don't know they're good at football yet, especially some of the you know your linebackers and your linemen and, and whatnot. I would go with a look at just the, the prospects' final three years. So many times we're looking at, at, at kids and we're talking to them, and they're like, yeah, I had four Fs as a freshman. I don't know that, that the freshman year matters quite as much as sophomore, junior, especially the senior years, when the prospect was working when he had an actual goal in mind. A goal that, by the way, will transfer over when he gets to college in right. the future of his career. So I would probably take the freshman year out of that equation. And I would also relax a little bit some of the rules that say you can't make up like a zillion credit hours over the, over, over the summer after your senior year via <laughs> online right. classes. Certainly that was ripe for fraud, but they, they really clamped that down pretty hard, and I, I would loosen that a little bit. One of the things that I, I've, I've thought about writing about, and it's, it's a really nebulous concept that's hard to write about, but um, you know, I think at this point in time, the whole Prop 48 debate, uh, going back to the 80s and 90s especially, um, I, I think now we view that as that was a terrible idea that, you know, you, that you can or that certain schools would be allowed in certain conferences. Nebraska is always the example we bring up um, that they would be able to take these risks and other schools weren't. You know, the conferences got to decide this and yada, yada. But I think taking the Prop 48 kids, um, the, the, the academic risks, um, I think it's looked back on as a bad thing that should have been fixed, but I don't know if it's, I like the academic redshirt idea because of the potential it has for taking a certain number of risks per year on, on kids who, like you said, got started late or just came from a hard situation. uh, And it took them a while to, to get going on the right trajectory. I like the idea of being able to take risks. I don't know if that means like being able to, like you've got your 25 signees and maybe you get two extras that are, uh, I, I don't know if they're designated as academic red shirts from the start or how that would work exactly. But basically having a couple of extra scholarships to work with, to take risks on kids who might have figured things out a little bit too late. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't like essentially squeezing the hose at the front end and not turning it off or not, not turning it on all the way at the back end. Right. right. Let, let, let's let's judge these kids based on what they did. If they managed to make up credits, maybe that shows that they've had positive uh, momentum towards the finish of their academic high school career. Maybe we don't academic redshirt those kids, or you know, limit it. At, at, you know, I'm saying like I, I don't like penalizing them both ways necessarily. Some of these kids that are headed for academic redshirts actually did finish their high school career strong, and I think could handle a college mm-hmm. course load. They just were really yeah. bad to start, and usually. If you, if you started terribly and you finished really strong, it's not because of a lack of ability. A lot of times it's a lack of motivation, particularly with the kids who d- didn't really have a legitimate shot to go to college but for the, the opportunity afforded to them with football. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's, uh, you know, there are a lot of, there have been a lot of good articles lately about the just the fact that the uh, the whole college sports, like there, there are fewer um, uh first time you know whatever you call it the the first time kid the the first member of your family to go to college and all that there are fewer of those now than there used to be and there are it it seems like to for a lot of in a lot of cases you have to kind of know what path you're on by about seventh grade and you have to be getting specialized teaching if you're going to be a quarterback and all these other things that are kind of added to it where the late bloomers not only maybe they don't get discovered, but they just don't, there's no chance for them to be discovered. And um, that's an area where, I, I mean, 
it, I, I just hate the thought of, you know, if you're a kid who, you know, you can't afford specialized training in seventh grade, you're not going to be able to, you're, you're going to lose ground uh, that you will never have a chance to make up or you might not have a chance to make up. I think that's taking the whole idea of college sports in the wrong direction. And it's hard to figure out a fix for it, but I, I'm open to fixes for it because I don't like it. I am too. And I, I, one of the articles on that was on uh, ESPN's undefeated site. And yeah, I thought it was yeah, that was a good one. I like that one. The, the one thing that I would have interjected with that is you got a lot of trainers out there making a lot yeah. of money off suckers. Uh, because like <laughs> we just said a minute ago, puberty is going to decide so much of this. I can train you all you want as a seventh grader, but if you don't grow, yeah. <laughs> yeah. great. You're going to be the most, most skilled, you know, five, six buck 80 kid ever. And you'll know, be a senior at that size. It, the training's not really going to help you very much. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. The, the penalizing kids for not having their act together as freshmen in high school is—you're a lot different person as a senior than you were as a freshman. I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's no. I mean, all I have to do is reflect on what I was like in eighth grade and twelfth grade, and uh, I mean, even in twelfth grade, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. But I was an idiot. Yeah. Like I, I think a lot of us were. You know. But yeah, that's that's something where it does. Uh, I, I, not that there's an easy answer, but that is something that is not, I, that I do not consider a positive trend. And if there's a way to allow schools to take risks or, or just allow for for opportunity later, um, I'm I'm very as as college football's commissioner, I'm very open to uh, you know discussion on those. So um, with the remaining time we've got here, I did want to uh, you know talk about some of the platform items that uh, are, are going into this, the, the ways that I have chosen to try to, to improve college football as a whole. Some of them are no-brainers. Other than others will get a little pushback, and, and we can certainly, you know, the effects of, pro- of promotion or relegation on recruiting would probably be quite uh, significant. But um, real quickly here, well, not real quickly at all, but here are the other eight. Uh, along with these recruiting changes, there are eight other platform items. I just wanted to walk through them one by one. Number one, I would hope that this is a no-brainer to some degree. Student-athlete bill of rights. A standardized student-athlete bill of rights. Um, I know some schools do it. I know Indiana put together a really good one. Uh, but just generally speaking, uh, the the items that Northwestern's uh, students thought they needed to unionize to get, uh, some of those things when it comes to um, long-term uh, health, I don't know if health care is the right way to put it, but um, better long-term health insurance, health care, uh, making sure that whatever uh, you, your body goes through while you are a student athlete representing your school, uh, it is more uh, properly addressed. Um, I love that. Uh, I, I think that's, yeah. I, I, I feel like that's a no-brainer, and I know a lot of schools are doing that, but it still needs to be standardized. Um, what are Actually, here's, here's one. What are your thoughts on the guaranteed scholarship, like a guaranteed five-year scholarship versus, like, is that something that needs to be standardized across? Is that something where, you know, schools can get a little creative in whether they are offering this kid a one-year scholarship or a five-year scholarship? Or should it just be, if you sign, you get five years at our school as long as you maintain uh, academic progress? Well, I, I think that the five years guaranteed would be really great for, for student-athletes. Um, and I'm all about helping out student-athletes. Yeah. I do think that you see a certain percentage of kids um, who more enjoy the perks of being on the team rather than actually playing the game. Right. And, and <laughs> yeah. get on campus and, for whatever reason, just lose motivation. 
but they still mm. get all the gear. They still get the notoriety and the popularity and, and whatnot. If you're a school, what what do you do if you sign a kid to a five year deal? Essentially, I mean, yeah. he, he's an, he's an employee now, but he's not performing up to at least a satisfactory level on the field. I I, yeah. I think that you do need to have some sort of check and balance for that. Obviously, academic progress is key. I would probably give the school a a certain number of, I don't want to say cuts, but I think I would say you can essentially pull a couple of these over a certain year period subject to an appeals process. Uh, but if you can demonstrate, look, this guy clearly, uh, he, you know, he, you can't be the, you can't use the missing voluntary workouts because they're voluntary, of course. <laughs> right. But if you could demonstrate, hey, he's you know, woefully out of shape. He doesn't give effort at practice. Uh, just is not giving a you know an acceptable level of commitment to play. You know, upholding his end of the bargain. Um, then I I'd be okay with that because that that's you know if you're going to give these guys more and more rights and more and more uh, compensation, which I think they should get. You still have to give quality effort. That that's that's yeah. also what they're going to you know they're going to encounter in the working world. I'm curious what a um, you know it's easy, well it's not easy to create good uh, academic progress guidelines necessarily, but you can create them. I'm curious what an athletic progress guideline would look like for a kid. Um, oh, I got whether it. it's like a like a weight maintenance thing or what? what how? So you have the uh, you have the GPS tracking systems now, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of these schools have them, and I can tell you, like at maybe a certain school in Tallahassee or Tuscaloosa, they wear the catapult system. They actually can can monitor like your VO two max, your maximum speed, the number of steps you took at practice, your exertion levels. They can compare that against against your expected baseline, all that type of stuff. <laughs> you know, the, the, and, and the wearable technologies that you know yeah. some of these athletes are, are going to. How much sleep are you getting? That, that type of stuff. You could probably use that to make a case if you if you were that's school. Funny. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's something people have considered yet, but I just <laughs> I was trying to think if I wanted to do this, how would I do it? But I do like the idea of guaranteeing a kid a five year scholarship, um, at least for the schooling portion, right? I, may, right. Maybe that's the, the the compromise here. We are guaranteeing you five years of schooling. Mm-hmm. If we want to pull your football scholarship, you know, we're not, there's probably got to be limits as far as how many you could do. But if you no longer give quality effort, we'll pull your football scholarship, but you are, are you remain on, on scholarship at school. Right. And you, you would assume that a lot of those guys would leave to go play football somewhere else. But yeah, that, that would certainly be, that'd be interesting. I think another thing that I, I really like that people brought up is the idea of graduate scholarships too. For the ones, because that, that is the trickiest thing, you know, the idea of you want to make sure that the guys, who want a quality education are getting steered in the right direction to get a quality education. You know, every school has those majors where, you know, because when you're a, when you're 19 years old, you don't really, you might not really care about what job you're going to end up with. If you don't end up in the NFL, uh, you will five years later um, when you realize like, wait, what this general ag studies degree doesn't really get me anything that I want to do besides high school coach. Um, So it's really hard to steer the ones who want to, get that degree in the right direction. The ones who might want a better uh, degree in the future than they do as a freshman, uh, you know, get those, make sure that they're set up in the right way. But I do think what like graduate scholarships would be interesting. And I do think that's something that, you know, if you're talking about a couple of years, especially that's not a dramatic amount of money Bill, that I think. 
if you wanted to pursue it, you would have the option of pursuing it. I, I like that too. I, I think that that's really good, and, and you're definitely improving the the quality of education available to the athlete there. Let, let me ask you this though: we okay. we talk a lot about the, the Bill of Rights and providing better quality of services, you know, compensation, all that type of stuff. Inevitably, the schools are going to drop football because of this, especially the schools whose TV deals just don't begin to cover their costs, right? How do we how do we balance sort of a much better deal for the ones that still have the scholarship with the inevitable loss of scholarships that's likely to come if if this you know, you know what I'm saying like like some schools are, are probably going to drop football or considering dropping down a level if this happens right right and so this is where you know it was kind of funny when we were designing this platform as a whole because it was a bunch of ideas that I've talked about before but then making them work together becomes really tricky like for a long time I had a generic item on the platform list about revenue sharing about you know the schools that can more than afford it. Um, because we don't, because the idea is that as many people as possible can get an education through football. That's one of the, that should be one of the goals of a college football commissioner, making sure that the the schools that have more than enough to cover it are in some way making sure that, well, that schools don't have to drop football that, that you don't, because that would result in a net loss of scholarship opportunities for playing the game. Um, and, and creating sort of a revenue sharing structure so that that can be maybe it ended up basically blending into a lot of the other ideas I had when it came to, um, the way I would go about non-conference scheduling, the way that, uh, conference, that, that promotion and relegation, which I am by God, I am committed to it no matter what, um, the way that that would play a role in, you know, if you are committed to football and you're doing well in it, you're moving up the chain, you're getting more scholarships to lose, but we still don't want those other schools to completely drop the sport. And that is a very tricky thing. Um, but some of this, I mean, but that's why I like the idea of, of, you know, graduate scholarships and things that are kind of, uh, you know, yes, they cost more money, but it's not, we're, we're talking about 10 or 20,000 a year for a kid. Uh, and not that, and you know, not just a ton of guys would take advantage of it, but the ones that did that wanted to could, that, you know, that idea versus the idea of player compensation in general. And, and this is where healthcare gets kind of weird, too, um, because that can end up costing a lot of money the longer you have the sport. But, uh, you know, uh, these are issues we need to be just, uh, talking about instead of because what, what happens with a lot of these, because we are so because this is such a political argument, uh, you know, this side says amateurism is just fine. This side says it's not. Um, the argument ends when, when one side can say, yeah, but what about this one thing? And then the argument ends because that's the talking point and we don't need to go any further. I, I'm trying to push the ball further in that regard uh, and get people talking about what would actually happen if we had better health insurance, what would actually happen. Um, and, and hopefully this whole platform list uh, generates that discussion. I, I, think, I think this is going to be really cool, by the way. Like I'm, I'm, people are probably going to be listening to this after release of the whole platform as right. well, but this is... It's, it's a great idea, and I'm glad you did this. Oh, yeah. I, it's taken a while to get all the pieces together, but I do think it'll be – hopefully it's a conversation starter because I am tired of – I just get – this is why I don't write about – like, the first blog I ever had was actually kind of a politics thing. And after a year of it, I was sick of having the same conversation every week for 52 weeks. And I, that, it, that has, is certainly part of the college football too. And, I, and anything we can do to push the conversation forward into what, should be, what is going to be happening instead of just yes, no, uh, that's, that's the goal here. But let's move, let's move forward. Like, that is a very uh, fungible concept that, we need, that would take a lot of – to get the Bill of Rights right, it would take a lot of work. But let's do it, and, and let's figure – let's do that work. Oh, uh, number hey. two – can, oh can yes. I, can I propose one more thing with recruiting? 
It's something yes. I've been thinking yes. about for a while. I just forgot. Okay. Why don't we have – and this could tie in with the ability to come back after the NFL draft. Yes. I would like to push February. If we're going to have December, let's create more distance between December and February. Let's push February signing day until essentially after the NFL draft, after the, these, these kids – when do kids graduate from high school? May? Late May? Typically, yeah, May or early June, yeah. All right, let's, let's make it like the second week in June for this reason. The kids who are going to early enroll are almost all going to sign December anyway, right? Or they'll just show up and enroll. If we push this, oh, yeah. to, if we push this to June, you can see a couple things. Number one, you have better certainty as to how many scholarships you actually have. Number two, <laughs> you have a better picture on which kids will actually graduate and how their grades have progressed. Because some kids really need that spring semester, you know? Yeah. I think I don't know about the utility of of ten weeks between December and, and and the first week in February. If we put a couple months between it like that, you do it after the NFL draft. I, I think that could really help. Hmm. Or even if you did it in when's the NFL draft? Like mid April, uh, late April or early, early May, typically. Yeah. Okay, so maybe we do it at the end of May. Hmm. I don't know. Just just a thought. Yeah, I've never around. thought about pushing the calendar in that direction. I uh, that's hmm. Yeah, I'd have to think about that. But then you would need essentially to find – there are some logistical difficulties there, signing at a college that late and then showing up in you know July. You basically show up two months later. But I well, guess I kids guess, who are early enrolled do it. Yeah, I mean, I guess – They show up a couple weeks later. You could, you could say that you know, as long as, 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 as committing to a school and enrolling to a school is an option in May or June, we don't need an actual signing period in May or June. You would just agree to show up with the, with the whole scholarship, um, uh, the letter of agreement or whatever that they, that's that the kids sign instead of the letter of intent. Um, you know, in theory, uh, was it Roquan Smith, the kid from Georgia uh, who went to Georgia? Um, right. just in theory, basically. you could just encourage that practice, but that only, I guess really works if you're a blue chipper. Um, yeah, that's something interesting to think about. We might be we might be looking at the ca- uh, the calendar in the complete wrong direction. And then you could um, have kids who go undrafted potentially come back to school. Yeah, who may you know, give the give uh, give guys longer uh, a longer period of time to take back uh, misguided decisions. Yeah, because some of them really are some of them are making you know smart decisions even if they go low, but uh, you know some of them are are likely making mistakes based on bad information. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of guys who, yeah. like, a fifth round, you know, maybe the guy goes in the sixth round, and then he thought he was going to go in the third. He wants to come back to school. The school would love to have him back, assuming he's, he's remained in classes and is eligible. Right. Hmm. Uh, you were bringing up point number two. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that kind of – now I'm thinking about that. Okay, anyway, um, the number two on the list was – and this is obviously – this is the heart of amateurism right here, the Olympic model. Um, I, I – Certain schools can absolutely afford to pay, like just uh, as employees, pay college athletes. But I very much understand that, I mean, A, that is hard to do outside of the top level of the sport. And B, like just the logistics and all the liability, it is it is very messy. And I understand that maybe being messy isn't a reason enough to not do it, but it is very messy. And so I think a lot, you know, going back to one of Andy Staples' uh, one of his lines about um, we're referring to him a lot. I refer to him a lot in this whole thing. Um, you know, only certain only certain guys are truly worth like four years at Stanford. 
and uh, others are, are benefiting from getting that education. Uh, you know, it is true that the student athlete experience offering that education to them is a great thing that they wouldn't have had. Uh, few are going to be worth hundreds and hundreds of thousands or a million of dollars or whatever. So what if we just leave it entirely to um, the, well, the local businesses, but also the national businesses and, and just allow guys to make money off their likeness, period. Um, let them make their money that way and the schools can, to whatever degree, if they're, as long as they're still providing cost of attendance and all that, they can stay out of the, you know, the, the idea of turning a, 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 you know, the recruitment of a five-star kid into like a bidding war, let, let it, the endorsements take care of that part. And, and you can stick to the scholarships and, and that way you can pursue the other things, the, the health insurance and the graduate scholarships and all these other things, because you're not suddenly paying a million dollars a year for a five-star quarterback. The, the only downside to this, I think, is that you would have the talent go to the top schools at even a greater rate because you're going to have some schools, maybe like schools located in states without any professional sports or oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> not to you name know, names or anything, anything else yeah. to do in the state uh, who are going to value the 85th player on the roster for some, some type of uh, sponsorship or endorsement purpose way over his true market rate, right? And that's, that's um, where I've gone back and forth a lot because, I mean, on one hand, yeah, like my, my initial thought with this is, like, okay, so Bob's used cars is going to pay 85 kids uh, endorsement money if you go to, you know, Tuscaloosa or what is it, Big Red Sports and Imports in Oklahoma, in Norman and all that. Uh, at the same time, if they want to try to do that without going out of business, if they want to really spend that much per year on those student-athletes, which they're probably kind of doing anyway, um I, 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 I kind of go back and forth on whether I consider that an actual problem or not. Um, and at the same time, I, you could say that a problem for the kid to get paid. It will right. probably create some greater inequality within the sport school versus school. I, I, and that's what I was trying to figure out too. Like if, if there's a, what's a, an example, like Kalamazoo, if Western Michigan, if you're the number one recruit on Western Michigan's board, is there, is there a local, you know, obviously nationally, you're not going to, you know, you know, American Express isn't going to be, you know, beating down your door. But is there a better local opportunity if you're the number one kid at Western Michigan as opposed to being the number 18 kid at, in Ann Arbor? And I don't, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But I've gone back and forth on that a lot. And, I've just, and I think at some point I decided, you know what, screw it. We're moving, we're moving with this because it's more fair. And if it benefits the big schools too much, I mean, A, you can always fall back onto, onto the everything benefits those schools anyway kind of thing. But... Uh, yeah, I, I think I, at this point I'm I'm okay with it enough to just say screw it. We're moving forward with it anyway. I I, I think I'm okay with it, um, and and I do think you're right that there's some type of uh, there's some type of upper bound limit on that, right? It, yeah. It's hard to see yeah. all 85 players getting <laughs> hundred thousand dollars, right? And in most cases, uh, you know the the really super big schools aside, in most cases, yes, yeah, certain guys, certain stars, three, four six, eight, 10, whatever are going to be making decent money. And I know then that's where somebody else will say, but that'll cause a divide in the locker room. Well, I mean, sure, but there's, you know, there's already sort of a divide based on who's actually getting to see the field in the first place. So I don't really know if that creates more of an issue or not, but, um, but yeah, I think at this point it is better to pursue it uh, than to not pursue it. And, 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 and as we go, we can change things uh, as necessary. Num- okay, number three is recruiting. Number four, 
if you can make money off your likenesses, then the single biggest hurdle for bringing back EA's NCAA uh, football has been cleared. Um, and if the kids are making money off their likeness and we don't have to worry specifically about school responsibility, then I think a lot of schools would agree. Part, part of the issue with bringing back EA uh, NCAA football is that all the schools, all the bowls, all the different licenses have to be signed off on individually. There's not like a collective. But to me, if we can figure out how guys can easily sign away their, 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 you know, their likeness, so to speak, at a big level so that, that EA Sports doesn't have to contact every single individual college football player, then I think, then I think we're bringing back the damn game. And I think that, that's, that's what's going to win me this election uh, is that we're bringing back NCAA football. I mean, I think my wife would vote against you, but I'm I'm de- you're, you got my vote for that alone. <laughs> I'm just tired of having to recycle the the damn uh, uh, you know tw- what was the last one 2013 2014. Uh, you know I'm ready to I'm ready to 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 get an update on that. Um, number five, and this is one that you know this is a personal pet project of mine. Relegation. Um, obviously, as as schools move down the list, you have, you do have to worry about contraction to some degree, but. The, the, the fact that so much of college football's power status is based on who you were friends with in 1932 um, will forever drive me crazy. And if we have a system set up for basic relegation, whereas if you're finished last, you know, we set up all the tiers. And if you finish last in your conference, maybe we set up a play in game and maybe we don't. But you you risk getting bumped down so that you don't benefit from being in a tier one school anymore unless you have your act together. I I'm in that, that, that is by far the most, um, the biggest change that my quote unquote platform, uh, provides to college football. Uh, but I am all for rewarding teams for actually doing things right. And not just, you know, being able to kind of rest on their laurels, so to speak, uh, and make money for, for being a power conference team when you haven't really done anything to deserve being a power conference team. I'm ready to change that. I, I'm cool with that. Uh, I think logistically there are some major hurdles as far as scheduling. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, basically and what this creates is like a like some sort of February scheduling caucus where where everybody just goes into a conference a, a giant conference room and comes out with their schedule. Uh but I'm okay with that too cuz that'd be fun as hell. I wonder I wonder if this really fits Bill with the NCAA's mission of educating student athletes. Like doesn't this <laughs> put too much emphasis on winning or or sure. Yeah, cuz yeah, we definitely don't already do that. Um, and it is fun, too, to start thinking about the scholarship implications. If you get relegated, like, if you get relegated, you can only sign, like, 12 guys next year or something so that your scholarship starts to work down. Or if you get promoted, you suddenly get to sign, like, 32. Um, but, do, no. Are, are you still guaranteed to give whatever level of scholarship that you promised to recruit? I think so. I think so. Like, basically, your scholarship, like... Uh, if, if we keep the same, uh, limits of 85 and what is it? 63, uh, for the second level. And then, you know, even lower for the third, you would be allowed to whittle that down over time. And, and that would certainly give you an advantage for getting promoted back up the next year, but I'm okay. A, I'm okay with that. And B, that's how it works. Like if you're in the premier league for five years and then you get relegated to championship in England, you have, you've made hundreds of millions more dollars over the last five years than any of, than a lot of your competitors. And so be it. I mean, you still have to run your program well. And so, yeah, I would allow for anybody with that guaranteed scholarship. You can phase that. You can certainly ride that out. You just can't sign as many guys. And that's, that's where the scholarship hit takes effect. 
Would you automatically replace somebody coming up? I, I guess what I was thinking is that there are probably too many FBS schools. Right. right? There, there's, we could probably each name, like, I don't know, 10 schools in FBS who are really resource-wise, success-wise, commitment-level-wise, should probably be FCS schools. Right. Like, are we automatically replacing them one for one, or would it be essentially we're kicking you out if you are this bad over a certain number of years, and then we may or may not choose to fill that spot, and if, you know, if we do, <laughs> it's essentially like an application process. Right. Well, I mean, I think this, this, this eliminates the need for an application process, but what happens is each of these levels, um, you know, there are basically five conferences. The Power Five is Tier 1. The Group of Five is Tier 2. The five best FCS conferences is, is Tier 3. And so you do end up getting a little bit of, first of all, that basically creates a, a new FBS, and it's only those five conferences. And you're trying to get into those five conferences. That's now the, the Premier League of college football, those five conferences. So I do think that kind of um, the scholarship thing gets a little weird if it's like 85 in tier one, 85 in tier two, 63 in tier three, et cetera. Um, but yeah, A, I guarantee that's something that we could work out through trial and error. And B, I do think that then your national champion coming from one of those five conferences, it, it eliminates a lot of, I don't know if it eliminates dead weight, but it it <clears throat> it, it it gets rid of some of the the weirdness of having that dead weight. You can have a tier two title now, if you want of just the group of five conferences, you can have a tier three title. If you want, you can handle that in any number of ways. But I think just the simple fact of if you're last in your given conference, one of these five, uh, you either get bumped down to the next level, which is for the most part, geographically consistent, like, um, the AAC and the AAC are tied. The, uh, the big 10 and the Mac are tied, et cetera. um, but you, if you're last in your conference, you get bumped down and you're playing, uh, you know, teams in your general geographic region, but you're playing a lesser caliber of team the next year because you lost your right to play that higher level of team until you get your act together. I got you. I, I would like to see, and I know a lot of people are, are this is not very PAPN brand, um, <laughs> but like I, I would like to see the first tier like greatly reduced, mm-hmm. right? To where I'm not saying let's make it NFL, but. You know, I don't necessarily want all these Power 5 teams, whoever we decide the Power 5 eventually is, to be playing all these group of fives and stuff. Because I don't think those games are, are – you know, we have exciting games occasionally, but more often than not, they're not very good. And that, that kind of hurts the television product. And I do think you know, we, we've seen with the NFL, close games oftentimes create ratings, whether or not the actual quality of the product is reduced or not. Um, I totally am I on think- board with more teams playing teams that are on their level. Yeah, and I think that's that's basically what what happens. You end up. I mean, obviously, teams will always be moving up and down. And there's uh, what do they call it? The zipper teams or zip yo yo teams, zipper. not zipper teams. Oh, okay. uh, but yo, basically, the teams that are clearly right on the borderline between one tier and another, and they're constantly moving up and down. Um, you would have some of those. But yeah, for the most part, what this does, I, that's why I love simulating this in that that annual piece that I write that I haven't written yet this year. Um, you know, what you see over time is a Pac-12 where the worst team in the Pac-12 is suddenly, you know, in the 50s in, in like an S&P or any sort of computer ranking uh, because the dead weight is now where it belongs and the Boise states of the world that actually know what they're doing are now playing at, in the tier where they have the tier that they have, quote unquote, earned. And so the, the dead weight teams that are in the 90s, you'll, you'll always have teams that randomly fall apart. But generally speaking, now the worst team in these power conferences is a legitimately decent team that with a looser schedule would probably go to a bowl. 
And um, they're struggling to do that now. And I think, I mean, that, that does create over time more close conference matchups. And then based off of this, you can also create scheduling rules where, you know, you can only, like I said, the, the conference in February, where the Battle Royal in February, like you have a designated rival spot, so to speak, if you and your main rival are suddenly playing on different tiers. But we, we can create something where you're only allowed, where you have to play X number of games per year against teams in your tier. Um, and you know, there would have to be like, if having everything be a single year scheduling does create a lot of messes and, and, and a lot of oddities, but you could even make it a multi-year thing as long as, um, you know, that you are following certain rules to make sure you're playing mostly teams in your tier. Um, and I, I think that, that, that does create a lot of, because you have the opportunity to move up and down suddenly, you know, the circle of life that Jimbo Fisher has talked about before where, you know, FBS teams play FCS teams. The FCS teams get that money. And Division II teams get the money from playing the FCS teams. And everybody, it's, it becomes that circle of life that I think is very important when there is such economic disparity, when there's a clear, when there's a clear path to whatever you want to call it, prosperity or whatever, uh, there's less of a need for that. And, and I think that that does create a meritocracy of, uh, of sorts. Um, we're only at five. We need to, I guess we're, we're approaching an hour here. Um, so real quickly, number six is the playoff. If you have set up a situation where students, where, where student athletes have better health care and they're able to make money off their likenesses, then you can justify playing a 16th game, I think. Uh, and you can expand the playoff to eight teams. I don't think you can do it before that. Uh, not that, you know, Bullware from Clemson was, uh, I mean, he was exaggerating with his, I would literally die if I had to play another game thing. But regardless, it's really hard to justify having guys who only make money from scholarships and cost of attendance playing 16 games in a regular season, especially when a lot of those are going to be against good teams. Um, but if they're, if they're more well taken care of, I think you can justify an 18 playoff, which would then include conference champions from all conferences. If we have established conference relegation, then we don't need to have a G5 representative. But if we haven't, then we do. Uh, and everybody, quote unquote, in the FBS level has a chance at the national title. Well, I, uh, I like that. I would also say let's uh, potentially expand the number of scholarships back to 90. Yes, I've, I've thought about that too, yeah. And essentially, like expanding the rosters, like baseball does. I would also do this. Currently, the, the medical red shirt is what you can't play more than the third of the season games. I believe so. Yeah. Let's let's up that to like sixty percent, or at least okay. you know, for, for, if you're a freshman. Yeah. You know, maybe let's say they'll incorporate more freshmen because a lot of times they don't want to burn a kid's red shirt just to play the last couple games. But maybe he's actually improved a lot as a freshman when he got on campus. He was lost especially your kids who are not early enrolling. Maybe he doesn't know what, what he's doing yet. He's, right. Hell, he doesn't know where his classes is or, or on campus. That's, <laughs> that's a big adjustment for a lot of folks. But if he's shown progress, maybe maybe if you play, maybe we bump this up to 50 or 60% in your freshman year. And that'll also create more excitement within the sport. Hey, you know what happens in the second half of the season? They got the Leonard Fournette type coming. Maybe if, <laughs> right. if he's right in practice. I, I don't really see a downside to that. Yeah, one of the the items later on this list is about how to in, uh, improve non-conference scheduling. Part of that is, you know, if you have a, if you're a conference champion, then you can get to the uh, the the playoff. Uh, you know, that that eliminate that way you can kind of experiment more in non-conference. But then also, I think that that incorporates what you're saying here. Um, even if it's not a medical redshirt, yeah, if, as long if you play no more than four games in a season. As a red as a as a as a redshirting freshman, you can still play three to four games a season. 
Um, but you have to play it in the first half of the year too. You could. You could. Currently. We could certainly I, make I that a limitation, uh, or at, at worst, make it to where you can't play in like the 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 postseason, uh, or right. whip out the star freshman or some random freshman change of plot kind of thing. Yeah, it, it, we can certainly put limitations on when you can play those games. But hell yeah, even if we have a situation where Florida State is still playing an FCS team a year, let's let's take a look at the true freshmen who are gonna who are gonna be counted on in future years. Uh, even if they are going to remain redshirt freshmen next year, let them play. I think that that would be a really interesting solution there. And that's a chance to you know it's also a chance if, if you let these guys play without sacrificing a year of eligibility potentially, uh, you also are providing more rest to the kids whose rights we also right. care about. That's very true. That's it's very like, the, like, uh, like when baseball expands their rosters and they go to, you know, for right. guys before the postseason. Part of it is yeah. to give their starters some rest. Part of it is because you want to evaluate your younger players. Yeah, that's a very good point. I, actually, yeah, I like the baseball tie there. Um, okay, so that was six and eight. Number seven was simply uh, get rid of divisions. We're going to pods. We're going to yes. all pods if you want a conference title game. I don't I, like we've talked about that one a lot. I think that is once we once it is laid out. I think this is one of the most agreeable ideas in the history of the world. Um, you know, Tennessee still gets to play Alabama every year. You get your three. Uh, you you get your three sta- steady non or uh, permanent rivals each year. For most teams, that covers it. Now, there are the Tennessees and the Auburns and the LSUs of the world who say, well, actually, we hate four or five schools. Well, that doesn't work perfectly, but guess what? You're still playing. If you're in a 14-team conference and you've got three um, permanent rivals and you're rotating the other five, you have played everybody in your conference within two years. You've gone to every home stadium within four. That is that is one of the best ideas. I didn't. I can say it's the best idea because I didn't come up with it. Uh, but I'm running with it. It is a great idea. We are getting rid of the imbalanced divisions. You get your rivals and the top two teams at the end of the year playing the conference title game. Boom. Do, do you remember which two or three rivalries would be cut in this and and like which ones? Excuse me. Were were the most controversial? Uh, there were all like when we did the SEC one. I think. Um, it was it was LSU, Tennessee, and Auburn because it, with especially Tennessee, it's a weird situation where Tennessee says we got to play Alabama every year, we got to play you know so and so the big schools. Meanwhile, Kentucky's saying we've got to play Tennessee every year. Vanderbilt saying we've got to play Tennessee every year. So there's always going to be uh, one or two or three schools in a conference where it does the you know thinking of the rivalries going in both directions there, where it's hard to limit them to just three. But again, you're playing them every other year if you're not right. playing them every year, and I Tennessee think that's Kentucky a good fall. Not a rivalry. I mean, come on. Kentucky loves playing Tennessee, though. And, and but, it, but it's one way. Can you have a can you have a one way rivalry like where, where one school right. hates the other, but the other school is just indifferent to it? <laughs> yeah, that's. I've never heard Tennessee fans talk on Twitter, and they talk a lot on Twitter. Uh, I've never heard them talk about being fired up to play Kentucky this this year. Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, and I, I don't remember who we chose for Tennessee right offhand, but yeah, they don't get both uh, Kentucky and Vanderbilt every year. So. Wouldn't it be Bama, Georgia, Florida, essentially, or? or at least two of them. Um, it was definitely jo- – yeah, I think that maybe – whoever it was with Tennessee, Tennessee it definitely ended up with um, the, the harder group. But still, when you, when you factor in you're playing all, uh, all of the other teams every two years, the average schedule strength, the average like S&P Plus ranking for Tennessee's schedule still wasn't that much different than the easiest. The range isn't very big, but, yeah, they're playing Alabama every year. Pretty sure they're playing t- Florida every year, and I don't remember if we kept Georgia or not. Maybe it was like um, Alabama, Florida, and Vanderbilt or something like that. Gotcha. I, I'm fine with that. You know, like, yeah. like I, I really don't, don't see the, – the benefits to this clearly outweigh the, the negatives. 
Right, I, exactly. I, I think. Um, yeah, and, and especially if you get to actually feel like you're in a conference. That, that was the joke with Missouri fans this year. Like, I better, go to, I better go to the LSU game this year, otherwise we don't have another chance until 2037 or whatever. Um, that's barely a conference. This way you're absolutely in a conference. You're absolutely playing everybody in a short amount of time. And if you are a four-year recruit, you are playing in every home stadium at least once. For FSU, it's um, Georgia Tech, right? Like, like this, this yeah. is the one FSU <laughs> fans complain about so much because it, it's, it's their closest, closest geographic rival by like two hours. Right. And yet they play them once every like six years. Yeah. Which and I mean, close. the last time they played, it was a hell of a game. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so then uh, we talked about spicy non-conference play. That is obviously very dependent on the, the relegation idea and who you were quote unquote allowed to play or not allowed to play. Um, but moving on to the final uh, platform item, number nine, the games are too damn long. We're shrinking the games. <laughs> Um, this is a, this is certainly an election friendly one, but generally speaking, uh, a, we need to, we, you know, it, this is, there's nothing uh, revelatory in, in this one, but a, we need to look at the, especially the high demand games. Uh, can we charge more for commercials, but have less of them figure out where that line is, the supply and demand line. Um, but just generally speaking, there are some clock rules that we can, uh, uh install that don't really change the, the game all that much. Number one. Clock doesn't have to stop for a first down until there are X minutes left in a given half. I, I think I said five, but whatever. Um, uh, technically, the clock doesn't even need to stop for an incompletion in the first X minutes of a half. Uh, those rules were designed, you know, the, I, I love the college football two-minute drill uh, that even o- only mediocre offenses can move the ball in two minutes uh, because of the clock stoppages. But we don't need to have that in, in the first five minutes of a game. Um, out of bounds, incomplete. That, that stuff doesn't need to stop the clock for the first uh, part of a given half. Um, and then number two, replays have a time limit. Uh, if you haven't figured it out after X seconds or X number of minutes, um, then just say it's inconclusive and let's move on with our lives. Um, <laughs> because there, there's absolutely no need to look at there, There's just no need to take five minutes uh, to determine. They've gotten a little better at this. But let's let's set a time limit to make sure that um, we, that we we don't start thinking of things in terms of like let's limit the replays. Let's you know if there are fifteen bad calls in a game, so be it. We limited the replays. No, let's just limit the time that the replays take. I like that. Um, what do you think about eliminating the challenge system? I, I am open to changing the challenge system. I, I think well, number one, if we have somebody reviewing every play like they say we do in the booth, yeah, you don't necessarily need a challenge. Technically, every play is getting challenged just to a certain degree, and it creates um, like an, a necessary, uh, uh, like adversarial relationship, right? Like, yeah. do we need to play up the the school versus ref dynamic more than we already do by challenge? <laughs> I'm going to challenge your call. I, I don't know. I, I think it's dumb in baseball. I think it's dumb in football. If you have competent replay officials, they should be able to, uh, you know, to buzz down. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. I agree. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know. Um, maybe we, like, we create some sort of, like, 30-second challenge timeout that you could use once per half to where if, if the team is trying to huddle, you know, trying to rush up to the line or something, you could say, hey, challenge timeout, right? I want right. to give the booth the time to look at that um, Look at that play. That would only add one minute per half, assuming that that you know that, that those are actually they can used. Utilize yeah. Um, yeah. What do you, what, do you have? Any, you have anything on the platform uh, about officials? Because we see the way the game is officiated varies a, a lot, conference <laughs> to conference. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I, uh, man, I, I, I freely acknowledge that officiating is very hard, um, but 
Yeah, I mean, I just think a healthy replay system is about as good as you're going to do. I mean, we can start to certainly work down into uh, rewards and and compensation for officials. That could certainly be an item on the list as well, Um, just to make sure that the good ones are getting rewarded for being good and that there is some sort of uh, instructional uh, setup for the ones who aren't very good. But yeah, that is a tricky one in general. And I think just having a good check uh, of a good, of a healthy replay system um, with giant freaking monitors in the booth where they're, you know, it's, it's not like that old NFL. I'm going to, we're going to look into a viewfinder on the sideline or basketball. Basketball drives me crazy. Um, Let's review our calls on this tiny ass little monitor at the, at the, uh, with a bunch of fans yelling at us. I, it blows my mind that we wouldn't be able to figure out a, a pretty healthy system in a booth uh, with the same angles that the TV stations are, uh, that the TV networks are, are, are uh, providing to be able to look at calls very quickly. Um, I, there, there, there's the whole other issue of like um, the way they call penalties and the way they call these other things. And that becomes this, you know, you can't really review a subjective thing, but maybe that becomes part of the evaluation of officials in general. Maybe we just figure out how to pay them more so that, and, and so that maybe they're able to be full time or something. I, I, I realize that's I, a hell of a lot of money right there. Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, my other thing that, that, and I, I don't know if I should admit this since I work in college football. I find myself watching the NFL more in college less due to this three yards downfield rule. And, oh. <laughs> and it's not that teams are like abusing it on every play, but it there's kind of a fundamental fairness issue if you're a defender to where you can read your key as the defense is designed and literally be wrong regardless of, of the choice you make. <laughs> and I think if we, just, if we think of it as like, like a percentage variance standpoint, it's much easier for me as an official to identify when a lineman has gone more than one yard downfield because look at, where, look at, look at where the linesman is actually aligned. He's looking down the line of scrimmage. He is initially checking to make sure which receivers are on the line of scrimmage and which ones are off, right? So I can much easier tell, okay, a guy has exceeded – one yard down the field, then I have to change my angle literally to to figure out when a guy has exceeded three yards down the field. I, right. I, I advocate going to the NFL rule. It doesn't eliminate RPOs. It just eliminates the ones that are pretty blatantly cheating where you have a <laughs> guard come out and block a linebacker at five yards of depth, and then you throw, <laughs> you throw a slant behind him as he's being blocked. That, that to me is... It actually, like, I like creative schemes. I, I like diversity of scheme. I think that's one of the great things of the college game. But now we're seeing it just, it's not hard to score points because right. of, of essentially just everybody's like, well, damn, I'm just going to scrap what I do and I'm just going to kind of start doing this. It's not, it's not foolproof, but it, it's just not that difficult to score points anymore in college football due, in large part due to this rule. Yeah, and I, I'm really, like, whether we need a new rule or whether we just make sure we are as accurately as possible in emph- uh, enforcing the rule that exists, um, I mean, that's certainly, I, like, I mean, I like points, so I, I'm not complaining too much, but generally speaking, yeah, whether it is a different rule or whether we just make sure that the hilarious cases like, what, Ole Miss, Alabama from a couple of years ago where there's a lineman, like, eight yards downfield or whatever, and then he throws the pass – like, if just enforce what we've got. Even that's an improvement. If we need to change it, I mean, that's fine. I mean, that's certainly 
we, the, schools have certainly gotten to um, experiment with the whole RPO concept quite a bit uh, at this point, and they, they'd be able to figure out some things, whether it's one, year, one yard or three or whatever. But yeah, whatever we decide, making sure it's enforced properly and making sure that's a reviewable thing. I think that, that would be, because uh, that would not be a long review. That'd be pretty easy uh, to review. I, I, was, I was at um, the Army All-America game. Right. And they had a college official there uh, at, actually at, at the bar that I was at. And I was chatting with him and, and he was telling me it's just so much tougher to enforce three yards down the field than it is one. So, like, the, mm-hmm. the reason why you don't see the egregious flaunting of the rule in, in the NFL, which I, I think is that, kind yeah. of more of a boring product usually, is because it's just easier to, to identify and call it. So, like, let's let's make this easier for officials, you know, it, I love that they can enforce it properly, but I think they've been instructed to, and it's still just the, the angles of the game naturally based on where they, they're, they're positioned is yeah. really tough. I can agree with that, yeah. That, that would be a, a pretty good uh, justification for, for, for changing that. Um, <laughs> yeah, whatever the rules are, you have to be able to enforce them. Uh, the officials on the field have to be able to enforce them. Um, well, that's, that's the platform. So basically, we are... Uh, making the recruiting process a little more fair for the, for the student athlete. We are making the process of being a student, student athlete more fair long-term for the student athlete. We are le- letting them make money off of their likenesses. We are letting, we are therefore bringing NCAA football back. We are installing relegation, which might take a little while. Uh, we are fixing non-conference scheduling um, so that if relegation hasn't occurred and you need to, uh, you, we're still having that circle of life against the bad teams. You're allowed to play your freshmen and get, uh, bring a little more reason uh, for playing those games to the table. Uh, we are, you know, if that becomes a part of a revenue sharing gig, all the better. We are getting rid of divisions. We are expanding the playoff to eight teams once we have the player compensation and long-term healthcare issues solved, and we are making games shorter at least three, four, five minutes per half shorter based on reviews and uh, clock stoppages for incompletions and whatnot. Boom. We have just made college football way better. I, I like it. Uh, Bill, I think you're going to get the votes uh, in a landslide. I, I, nobody is going to vote against me if there's no vote. So uh, it, it, as far as I'm concerned, that means it's unanimous. Now, have you created like kind of a straw man to run against? That's right. Maybe, I need to. Maybe like Mr. Quo, uh, first name status. <laughs> or, or I just use like an Oliver Luck uh, placeholder, Jeff Long. <laughs> a name that everybody knows, even if they don't know why they know it. We can, we can go with that. Could you have Kirk do the Jeff Long voice and, and read the, the, hit, like the Jeff Long platform? Because for those of y'all who haven't heard, Jason's Jeff Long impression is amazing. He got, a, he got a lot of exposure to Jeff Long the last couple of years. I guess now it's Kirby Hocutt, but still. All right, I appreciate it, bud. This was fun. Um, hopefully, at the very least, whether people support a commissioner platform or not, uh, they agree that the changes uh, that we talked about recruiting-wise are very important and should happen regardless. I like that. Uh, let, let's, let's make those changes happen and be fair for the high school kids. Make college football great again.